0: Can I have, a nurse? Can I have a nurse
1: that? We have 180 teenagers for a year, and that's it. It's not enough time to understand what is going to happen to that teenager long term. We need studies that have looked back after 20 years. We need to know what's going to happen to these kids when they become adults, when they become older adults, but not. The first year it's so dangerous these drugs yeah. haven't existed for long enough we've never used them in children before it's terrifying to me absolutely terrifying
0: can i have another snack hey welcome to the can i have another snack podcast where we talk about food bodies and identity especially through the lens of parenting I'm Laura Thomas. I'm an anti-diet registered nutritionist and I also write the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today I'm talking to Dr. Asher Larmy. Asher, who uses they them pronouns, is a transgender non-binary GP and fat activist who is campaigning for an end to medical weight stigma. They're the founder of the hashtag no Way campaign and they have over 20 years of medical experience and have been fat for even longer than that. As the self-styled fat doctor, Asher started a blog in June 2020. They now also host a successful podcast and run a number of training courses as well as monthly webinars for people who are interested in learning about weight inclusivity. Today I'm going to be talking to Asher about the news that came out of the UK that the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, or NICE, is considering approving the weight loss injectable semiglutide for kids. Asher is here to explain to us why this is catastrophic for kids' sense of safety in their bodies and their well-being. We talk about the evidence behind semaglutide, or I suppose the lack thereof, the potential side effects and unintended consequences, and of course we talk about the company behind this drug, Novo Nordisk, who are set to make bank off of fat kids. Just before we get to Asher though, I wanna tell you real quick about the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter, community, whole universe. Now, I know we're not used to having to pay for content on the internet. And why would you pay for something where 85% of the content is free? Well, that's a great question. I'd love to answer it for you. Well, because without paying supporters, this work just wouldn't be possible. As well as supporting me in the time it takes to research, interview contributors, and write articles, your support goes towards paying guests for their time and their labour, as well as a podcast and newsletter editor. You also help keep this space ad and sponsor free, so I don't have to sell out to advertisers or exploit my kid for freebies. Plus, Keeping the community closed to paying subscribers only means that we keep the trolls and the fat phobes out. I recently asked the Seahouse community why they support the newsletter, and this is what they had to say I am a mum of one fairly adventurous, self proclaimed vegetarian and one theoretical omnivore. The latter survives almost exclusively on added sugar and butter, but mostly sugar. I consumed all the picky eating advice some of it really well-meaning and pretty mellow, but by seven years in, I was more frustrated, confused, and full of self-doubt than ever. Enter Seahass. The no-nonsense, cut-through-the-bullshit, science-backed content is exceptional. The content about sugar is especially helpful to me, and the anti-diet lens is an anecdote to my extremely anti-fat slash diet culture conditioning, and as an American, the British references are just an added bonus to say your work is actively changing my life is not an understatement. Thank you. Well, thank you to the reader who shared that lovely testimonial. And if that hasn't inspired you to become a paid subscriber, I don't know what will. It's just a fiver a month or 50 pounds for the entire year, and you get loads of cool perks, as well as just my undying gratitude for supporting my work. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to subscribe now. All right, team, over to Asher. So Asher, last month, the news broke that the Department of Health have recently asked the medical watchdog NICE, which stands for the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, to review the so-called benefits of using weight loss injectables for kids aged between 12 and 17 years old. Hmm. Specifically, they're looking at the drug semaglutide, which has been in the news a lot recently, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I wondered if we could start by talking about what exactly semaglutide is, how it works, and what the evidence says about it.
1: You used to put it in air quotations, or you said so-called benefits, didn't you? I like yeah. that, <laughs> that. That was a really good way to start. But yeah, so semaglutide, it's a incretin mimetic. It mimics a hormone called incretin, or one of the hormones, GLP-1, which is an incretin. and, And these hormones are released by the gut in everybody's body. And in response to eating, so once you have a meal, your gut releases these hormones and they impact several parts of the body. The main thing they do is they impact the insulin pathway. So they impact the pancreas. But they also have various other effects. And one of them is they sort of decrease appetite and increase a feeling of satiety, of fullness, which makes sense, right? Because when you start eating, after a while, your body sort of wants to tell you, okay, you've been eating now, like it's time to stop eating because you can't eat forever. And and when we talk about intuitive eating, we're always talking about like picking up our hunger cues and picking up our fullness cues. Well, there's a reason we have hunger cues and fullness cues. It's nothing to do with the size of your stomach or anything like that. It's because of these hormones acting on the appetite sensors. Mm -hmm in the brain so this drug semaglutide was designed for diabetics because of the way that it works on the pancreas and the insulin pathway but they found very quickly that it causes appetite suppression and so people were losing weight on this drug their diabetics were losing weight and to this point
0: just to clarify you are talking about in adults right this absolutely research was initially
1: done in yeah. diabetic adults in diabetic adults and we're talking When they probably started working on this drug, this would have been early 2000s. I think the first one of its, uh, the first drug in this group, and it wasn't semaglutide. By the way, it was a completely different drug and would have come out in the sort of early 2000s. Semaglutide for diabetics, which is Azempic. Azempic is the brand name for the drug semaglutide, one milligram weekly subcutaneous injection. So it comes like a little pen and you inject Mm -hmm. it into your stomach usually. One milligram is the maximum dose for diabetics. And the brand is Ozempic. I
0: can't
1: remember. I don't want to say for sure, but it was definitely after 2010, somewhere around that time that we started using it in diabetics when it was approved. And more recently, we've been using it in diabetics more and more and more. It's a very expensive drug. As In fact, it is the most expensive diabetic drug. I don't know how it compares to insulin, but certainly compared to all the other diabetic drugs.
0: Yeah, I saw that for like a month's supply of wigovi which is the the weight loss version of Ozempic, okay, that it costs something like thirteen hundred dollars a month in yeah, the yeah. US. I don't know what it is in the UK, but in the US, thirteen hundred dollars a month—that is an astounding amount of money.
1: Sure, and that's the private prescription. But when you look in the NHS, it's how much it costs the NHS per month, right mm-hmm. So that's always like the sale price. It's a, you know, it's it's not that's the, the, the the wholesale, the wholesale, the Costco price, the Costco <laughs> price. <laughs> And I can't remember what it is, but it's at least twice as much. It's expensive. It's expensive compared to metformin, which is probably like one pound a month. Right. It, you know, in terms of diabetic drugs, it's mm-hmm. much more expensive. Anyway, so Nordisk creates Semaglutide, It's a once weekly injection. Ozone pick, people like it. And then quickly they realized it was kind of like viagra's Viagra story. I mean, if you know the story of Viagra, that sildenafil was, was supposed to be for blood pressure. It was, it was an mm-hmm. antihypertensive for blood pressure. But they soon realised it's not so much what it does to blood pressure. In fact, it wasn't very good with blood pressure. But look at the side effects. You think something was happening to men, and so they realised. Well, we could definitely corner the market here because there's no other sort of medicine that has quite the same effects. And so Viagra was born. This is very similar. Ozempic was being used on diabetics. Diabetics were losing weight, and they thought, right, let's push this through. Let's let's turn this into a weight loss drug. And so they started studies in 2017, 2018. They started the actual study. The results came out late twenty twenty, maybe early twenty twenty one, depending mm-hmm. on the studies. It's been eight, and then the teenage one. So we're talking still adult only, right? Right. Literally within like six months, the FDA had approved it, and Nice took a little bit longer. They sort of semi-approved it in twenty twenty two and fully approved it in twenty twenty three, with very very little data. All we know mm-hmm. is that this drug suppresses your appetite and therefore makes you lose weight. And it also does all the other things like sort of acts on the insulin pathway and Mm -hmm. all the other things that it's known to do. But we have no idea how that impacts non-diabetics and how that will impact children, certainly. Mm -hmm. We have a zero idea.
0: Okay, so just to summarize because you're a doctor (laughs) and not everybody else is. This drug is a glp one analog mm-hmm. so it mimics a hormone in the gut that is produced naturally in response to in response to eating a meal mm-hmm. our bodies our guts pump out this hormone and mm-hmm. that is one of the ways one of the pathways one of the signals that tells our brain okay we can slow down now we've we've got enough here we'll mm-hmm. be good for a little while right that's it and so we have a, a fall in our appetite basically mm-hmm. what this drug is doing it's an external Version of that hormone that you are injecting into your stomach Mm -hmm. that artificially suppresses your appetite, right? So it's not, (laughs) it's essentially tricking your body into thinking that you've had more food than you actually have. Mm -hmm. Now, this might be helpful when you have a chronic condition such as type 2 diabetes. It might help manage blood glucose. Mm -hmm. However, what you're saying is that we don't know what the impacts are on people who have just been prescribed this for weight loss. And we also don't know the impact of this on children who are growing, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, all of it is a mess. All of it is concerning and upsetting to me, but it feels particularly upsetting and concerning to me when we're talking about children, when we don't know the full scale of the impact. So what evidence do we have on children, you know. why are we at, I mean, this is a separate conversation, but if we could get into the minds of the DOH and the nice people, why do they think that we should start prescribing this to children?
1: Well, first of all, we've been lied to about this drug. Although I think the Department of Health and the National Institute of Clinical Excellence should be smart enough to figure out that they've been lied to about this drug. I can understand why the average person doesn't. But if you've read studies, which I have in detail, all eight of them, well, seven of them, one wasn't published, and the one on teens, Mm -hmm. it's very obvious because the first thing is, in order for them to achieve weight loss, the participants in this trial had to go on a diet, 500 Mm -hmm. calories deficit, plus Mm -hmm. exercising for 150 minutes a week, plus an hour of counseling every month.
0: Right. We don't know if the impact is coming from the diet and lifestyle modifications versus the drug in and of itself?
1: We do to a degree because Mm -hmm. everybody was on the diet. Only some people were on the Wegovy and others were on placebo, just a water injection. And so what we saw was, A, that diets don't work, which you've been saying this whole time. (laughs) The diet only group only lost about 2.5% of their body weight over a period of a year and then regained it all. So diets don't work, what a surprise. The people who took the Wegovy definitely lost much more weight there was a significant difference. So in the first 16 weeks, that's when you lose the most amount of weight. We know this, this is the physiological response to calorie deficits or energy mm-hmm. deficits. It then slows down. And between sort of week 16, week 20 until about month 10, it's sort of slowed down, but we're still going. And then at month 10, in the first study, we reached the nadir, which is the peak. And then people started regaining weight. Mm -hmm. If you look at the study over two years, people regained something like 15% of the weight that they lost within eight months. You carry that forwards. I mean, it's not particularly scientific to carry it forwards, but if you were to assume that every eight months you'd gain about 15% of the weight that you'd lost, within five years, you've regained the weight. And that's if you're on the medication. Yes, If you... stop the medication, which in the UK, you only are entitled to have it for two years. The moment you stop that medication, you will start regaining the weight. There is absolutely no way you can maintain it because nobody could. Nobody could maintain it. Even when they stayed on the diet, they could not maintain that weight loss. Mm. They immediately start gaining the weight back. And at a rate that is almost unprecedented, we've never seen such dramatic weight loss followed by weight regain with any other weight loss drug
0: well shit you're gonna be hungry if, as soon as you
1: stop I, taking that drug like you're gonna be fucking hungry sure although i think it's more than that Like i i don't even think that explains it there's something else that's happening in the body and we just don't know what it is right I don't know how it's working and this is it like
0: when you go in and you start messing with Hormone pathways. Yes. It's not just going to be one individual pathway in isolation. There are That's going to exciting. be knock on effects. And that is what we've seen in historic weight loss medications, right? Where That's we're giving people something for weight loss, but it turns out ooh, actually we're burning them alive from the inside, right? That's, That's what has cool. happened with other, right. d- with other drugs. Or where we've we've tried to suppress people's appetites, but we've also suppressed their libido because again, you can't isolate out individual pathways within the human body because everything is interconnected
1: that's exactly right and actually what we know is that this drug primarily works on the insulin pathway and the insulin pathway is extremely important for mm-hmm. so many different reasons mm-hmm. we know that the insulin pathway insulin sensitivity insulin resistance for example leads to weight gain so we could you know make an argument that actually once you stop messing with the insulin pathway perhaps there is a weight regain and perhaps you're making permanent changes to the body because you're messing with a pathway you shouldn't be messing with. I, you know, I often say, don't play about with a healthy organ if you can avoid it. And so in a diabetic, the pancreas is already exhausted. The pancreas is already struggling. So, okay, you're going to mess with the pancreas, but it needs help anyway. Mm-hmm. Benefits outweigh the risks. But in this case, these people with a healthy pancreas, especially children, the last thing you want to do is mess with organs that are still growing. You know, that that's massively worrying. So the first thing I will say is that we have been lied to about this medication. We have been told that this medication will help you to lose weight and keep it off. Wrong. Even nice said with the adult's Mm -hmm. guidelines. You will not be able to maintain the weight loss. So that's one thing.
0: And can I ask you, sorry, I know you're like desperate to tell me your second point, but I'm just curious, like, what is the reason that NICE are giving for people only being able to stay
1: on the drug for two years? Because that's all the evidence we have. We don't have anything beyond two years. Right. If we had evidence for five years, they probably would have said five. But they've said, look, we've got is two years. So that's all we can allow. Now, remember with NICE, it's the UK, this is a nationalized health service, it's only a certain amount of money. So when NICE is approving a drug, they're not just worried about the drug safety, efficacy, you know, and all. that stuff they're also worried about is this a cost effective yes money. is it cost effective (laughs) so nofo nordis had to prove to nice that there was a cost benefit so helping people lose weight for two years and then regain it which they admitted would happen because that's what their studies show and so that's the problem if you look into that calculation that calculation is materially flawed The fact that NICE accepted it makes me very skeptical of the whole thing, but we can cross that bridge later. The point is that in the UK, you can only have it for two years. Mm -hmm. But even if you continued it for five years, you will have regained most of the weight back by that point Mm -hmm. in time. And then they talk about maintenance doses. What maintenance dose? If the treatment dose doesn't work, then what's the maintenance dose going to do? What does that say to me? They can only keep going up, up, and up. Right. You know, at what point in time are we going to accept that we really shouldn't be messing around with the body like that just for temporary weight loss? That's all it's doing. It's not improving your health. There's no evidence that it does anything for your health. It just makes you lose weight. They didn't even bother to measure the impact on your health. Even your like blood pressure, cholesterol. They didn't even bother to do like a statistical analysis of that. I think because they knew
0: that they wouldn't be able to find anything. It's just so transparent, isn't it's it? When you say just, that, like it's just, we don't actually yeah. give a shit about your health. No, no, we don't care about any other parameter of your well-being. Yeah, we
1: just want to make
0: yeah. money off of you.
1: And so you asked. You said, "Well, why? Why are we trying to get this available for children?" And the answer is simple: for more money. Novo mm-hmm. Nordisk is a tra- you know a traded company. They have a a group of shareholders, and they're constantly trying to improve their you know profit margin. Yeah. And And the thing is, when you look at all of the, for the last 15 years or so, there's been this huge push, hasn't there, to quote-unquote tackle the quote-unquote obesity epidemic. And, you know, we have a quote-unquote war on obesity and all these, you know, like really kind of like highly charged words. Novo Nordisk Mm. has had their hands in all of this. Novo Nordisk has fingerprints on every single article that you read in the paper, Mm -hmm. every single PR campaign for the last ten years. Whenever you hear the word "childhood obesity" in the in the papers, whenever you hear that word, if you look carefully enough, you will find Novo Nordisk. Mm. They have wanted to sell this drug to teenagers for a really long time. Yeah. So much so that the American Academy of Pediatrics, when they brought out their guidelines, they actually held off and waited for Novo Nordisk Very to approval. be able to put mm-hmm. their study into the into the belt. They literally, yeah. they were like. This is the cutoff date. And then they went, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Novo's not ready. All right, let's just wait. Let's just wait. Let's just wait. Novo's ready now. Okay, we can proceed. That's how much influence Novo this has. And so it's simply about making money. The risk, the potential risk to children is really mind-boggling. Yeah,
0: so let's talk about this because there's, as far as I know, there's one study in adolescence. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's it, yeah. Should we talk about that single study that they are basing? Yep this recommendation or this, you know, it hasn't gone through yet, but this, I mean, I mean, come on, the writing's Mm -hmm. on the wall, right? They're going to do everything that they can to push this through. First of all, let's talk about the study and then let's talk about the implication for children, for adolescents. 180
1: 12 to 17 year olds Mm -hmm. are involved in this. It's only 180. Bearing in mind that the one for adults, the first one was Mm 2000, 180 is actually a very low number of people. And basically it was a typical randomized controlled trial. Some got placebo, some got Wegobi. You know, they did it for 68 weeks and then they were interested in change in body mass index. That's all they were interested in. They didn't look at anything else. And they found exactly what all of the other studies found, that in the first year, children lost weight and they lost much more when they took this drug than they did when they had placebo, just water. It's not surprising that is what always happens. You know, when you have a drug that's going to suppress appetite, it's going to be more effective than just, you know, trying to suppress your own appetite, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Right? So, of course, it was effective, but it was only effective for the first year. That's all we've got. That's all the data we have: 180 teenagers for a year, and that's it. It's not enough time to understand what is going to happen to that teenager long term. We need studies that have looked back after 20 years. We need to know what's going to happen to these kids. When they become adult, when they become older adults, but not the first year, it's so dangerous. These drugs haven't existed for long enough. We've never used them in children before. It's terrifying to me, absolutely terrifying.
0: Something that I found really interesting, um, so shout out to Regan Chastain, who did a really great deep dive on this, on her um, weight and health care uh, substack, I'll link to it. But one of the things that, that she pointed out were all of the side effects that were reported in this study, a lot of them were related to gastrointestinal side effects. So a lot of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. And so again, of course, if you've got a kid who is nauseous, who has diarrhea, if they've got that for an entire year, they're going to lose weight. Mm-hmm. But at what cost to that and, child, to their quality of life, to yeah. like, think about if you feel sick, like even for a couple of hours during the day, let alone for an entire year. Mm-hmm. And these are kids who are, you know, presumably going to school, trying to learn, trying to have a social life, trying to navigate the head fuck that is puberty, right? Mm-hmm. All of that stuff. Yeah, And we think it's a good idea to, Subject them to this kind of like for why
1: yeah why <laughs> so to me weight loss in children is absolutely unacceptable mm. always okay if I see a child who is accidentally losing weight it's a huge like, red flag huge red flag, flag. like that that's like panic stations figure it out immediately the second thing I will say about children is that we know that dieting of any kind is going to predispose them to eating disorders, especially at that stage in life. Especially right? like, at this, it is the this is the most worst.
0: vulnerable point in a child's development.
1: Absolutely. For yeah. Yeah, the yeah, onset I mean, of a, an eating disorder. And we know that the more extreme their sort of dieting behavior is, the more likely they are to develop an eating disorder. So that's the second thing. It's not just that dieting creates eating, but the more extreme. Now, taking drugs is one of the most extreme form of dieting out there. So what we're doing is we're essentially prescribing eating disorders to adolescents. Mm-hmm. It is no wonder that over the last 20 years, certainly over the last few years, where we've become more and more obsessed with weight in children, where we keep sending them to these quote unquote weight management clinics and we keep singling them out, it's and policing what they eat and all this stuff if you're a fat kid nowadays like you know you can't even bring in a packet of fish in your lunchbox without getting told off by your teachers
0: you can't even have a, ca- a snack that's over 100 calories it's something I'm writing about at the moment and it's fucking horrendous because we're po- literally policing, policing the amount of food that a that's... child a growing child can have yeah.
1: it's yeah. despicable but what are we doing? More importantly, we are literally prescribing an eating disorder to them. We are saying to them, "This is what's going to happen." And are we surprised that nowadays eating disorder rates have gone up Escalated. dramatically? Mm-hmm. They're escalating. They're escalating in boys. They're escalating in people with, like, you know, multiple marginalized identities. You know, it's not just a really thin, sort of like fragile teenage girl anymore that we need to be worried about. We have to be really concerned about all of these young boys for example who were trying to build up muscle mm-hmm. and it's actually quite terrifying what's happening to young people their mental health is really poor anyway at the moment and what we're yeah. adding to with this weight management is just awful so this isn't even about the drug this is just about the fact that you should never mess with weights and a child you should never ever mess with growing organs just yeah. let the child grow up
0: I wanted to ask you about like what are the implications of putting a child on a calorie restricted diet. Yeah. Messing with their energy intake while they are growing and developing. Like what are the implications there for around their physical development, around puberty, around sexual development, all
1: of those things? What do we know? (laughs) Or do we just not know? (laughs) I was going to say, first of all, it's amazing how much we don't know. No one is interested in researching this. No one ever says, what are the risks? Of putting a child on this medication, you know, they look at the side effects of the medication, but no one's actually said, what happens to children if you put them on diet after diet after diet when they're young? We know the answer to this question because we are, and we are of the generation. I'm, I'm 43 years old. I was on a diet when I was a kid. I know exactly what that did to me. Mm-hmm. I weight cycled and weight cycled and weight cycled and weight cycled. It messed with me mentally. It messed with my self-esteem, my self-worth, my confidence. Instead of helping me to trust my body, it did the opposite. It took away my relationship with my body, my relationship with food. All of these things, like it completely messed with that. So that's from a kind of like psychological point of view. But from a, from a physical point of view, with these particular drugs, we don't know. We're not just worried about malabsorption. You're not getting enough nutrients if you're not eating enough food. That's that's well, hugely problematic, right?
0: Yeah, and I know you you say we don't know, but I think. We have a good sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can infer <laughs> what we would imagine would probably happen. Like you say, if you, if you don't have enough nutrition, if you yes. have deficiencies, what I'm thinking about in particular is bone health and how yes. can you know while you're still trying to achieve peak bone mass, mm-hmm. you are then putting people at risk, children at risk for falls and fractures, and you know osteoporosis, osteoporosis. as osteoporosis. they, osteoporosis. they get,
1: osteoporosis. as they get older, anemia, you know all sorts of things. Also, gastrointestinal problems. So, mm-hmm. we're looking at things like, you know, irritable bowel syndrome and stuff like that. You know, you, you mess around with the gut because this drug, That's what you're like doing. I said, mm-hmm. this drug impacts your appetite centers, but it also impacts your gut itself. So, you're going to mess, you know, we're, we're talking sort of gut function and motility issues. And this is the thing that, like, you know, most concerns me out of everything is you are messing with a healthy pancreas. Now, if you understand the insulin pathway, what happens with insulin? Is that when we ate food, sugar, insulin is released because of these incretins, right? The incretins from the gut, the GLP-1 comes along, tells the pancreas, hey, there's food Food. here. We need to process Uh, it. And and it goes, I'm going to release lots of insulin. So that's the pancreas that needs insulin. Insulin is like a key. If you put the key into the lock and you turn the lock that you open the door, sugar can go from the blood where it's, you know, currently sitting, into the cell, which can then be used as energy for the cell or can be stored to be used later. Mm -hmm. So you need the sugar to go from the blood where it's useless into the cell where it's needed. And insulin is the key. Now, over time, some people develop something called insulin resistance. Because you're overproducing insulin, and that's one of the first things that happen is we start overproducing insulin. Nobody knows why. It's probably genetic. You start overproducing insulin. So now there's lots and lots and lots of keys, constantly trying to turn locks. And eventually the, the locks become a bit salty, right? You keep messing around with the lock after a while, locks, you know, stop working as well. So now you can't open the door to get into the cell. So there's more sugar in the blood. And eventually when you have enough sugar in the blood, you develop a condition called diabetes, type two diabetes. At the same time, because of all this stuff that's happening, the pack is panicking. I keep releasing insulin. But there's still loads of sugar in the blood. Like, what's mm-hmm. going on? So the pancreas does what, like, you know, like what Jewish mothers do, you know, it's like, let's just keep going. It, it doesn't stop to think, mm, I wonder what's going on. And no, no, no. Just, yeah. they just keep doing the same thing. And just It overworks itself. It, yeah. It becomes exhausted
0: mm-hmm. as
1: any organ would. After a while, it becomes knackered. We call it pancreatic exhaustion. At that point in time, you're also going to, ha- ha- it's also going to have implications and you'll develop type 2 diabetes. So here's my thing. This drug, is making you secrete lots and lots of insulin because, like you said, it's fake incretin. So mm. you're injecting it into your skin. All of a sudden you have lots more of this, you know, a mimic of this hormone in your mm. blood at all times. So your body starts producing more and more yeah. insulin. Mm-hmm. Now, as it produces more and more insulin, if you're a diabetic, this is great because you need the insulin. But if you're not a diabetic, you're producing all of this insulin, keep producing it, keep producing, it, keep producing is Isn't it possible theoretically? that you could actually be speeding up the process of insulin resistance. And so what you could be doing is you could be speeding up the process of developing type 2 diabetes. So isn't it possible, and it's just a theory because there's no evidence, but isn't it possible that if we give a 12-year-old this drug and they take it for, say, five years, because by that point in time, they'll be allowed to take it for five years. They take it for five years and then they start to develop insulin resistance. And maybe by the time they're in their twenties, they've got quite profound insulin resistance and then they get diabetes at 26. And people think, gosh, diabetes at 26, that's quite young, but you know, they are fat, so it's their fault. They've been fat since they were a kid, so it's their fault. This would be, it wouldn't surprise me and we wouldn't be able to do anything about it by then. So I'm not saying that this drug is going to cause diabetes. I'm just saying that it is theoretically possible that it could cause diabetes because excess of insulin is the first step Mm -hmm. of insulin resistance and diabetes progression. Mm -hmm. So this is really worrying and nobody is addressing this. It also interferes with the cholesterol pathway and all sorts of other things. So Mm -hmm. my worry is that it's actually making things worse rather than better.
0: And it sounds as though Novo Nordisk are not asking those questions. <laughs> they
1: have no they have no
0: there's no mention of this anywhere in their Nothing. literature i have to
1: say nobody's asking and this is what i can't understand right i'm a gp i am not an expert there must be people out there who understand the process of insulin resistance and are thinking hmm, logically this makes sense i wonder if we need to look into it but I, I never hear anyone talk about it and i remember the first time i brought it up with greg dodell who is an endocrinologist yeah, yeah. I remember the first time I said, are we not worried about this? And he was like, no, of course not. Because, you know, it, it reduces insulin resistance. And I was like, no, 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 it, it reduces insulin resistance in diabetics. But what about in healthy people long term? Shouldn't we be worried about this? And I remember at one point in time Greg, go, oh.
0: oh, fuck.
1: <laughs> no one no said it before. And I was like, yes, why is no one talking mm-hmm. about this? But nobody is. And that's just one of my many concerns. It also causes pancreatitis, acute pancreatitis, yes. which is a life-threatening condition. There's no evidence that it causes pancreatic cancer, I just want to point out. But we also don't have enough long-term data to say whether it does or it doesn't. So that is an absolute, we couldn't say, you know, we couldn't possibly comment.
0: Yeah, even, you know, regardless of what the long-term implications are, which obviously there is not enough research going on, Mm-hmm. to establish that but even the short-term mm-hmm. impacts on children you know again some of those side effects that were reported in the study we were talking about were gallbladder problems yeah. gallstones low Goldstone. blood pressure yeah. itching rash like all kinds of yeah. side effects yeah. on top of the nausea vomiting diarrhea headache abdominal pain all of these other things and i just there is no rationale that i think you could convince me of where that is a good idea to subject children to that. And, you know, and that's without knowing the answers to what about their growth? What impact is this going to have on their development without knowing any
1: of that? When we're making a recommendation, right, there's two things we look at. Number one is the quality of the evidence. The quality of the evidence here is shit. The second thing we have to understand is are the benefits, do the benefits far outweigh the risks? If the benefits don't outweigh the risks or if the benefits are sort of similar to the risks, then we shouldn't be recommending this, this any medication. Not only is the evidence shit, but there are no proven benefits apart from temporary weight loss. And there are so many risks, some of them hypothetical, but as you say, some of them very real and very immediate. 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 Yeah. So if that's the case, there is never a reason to give this drug to a child. Never, ever, ever. Especially because, yes, they are able to consent, but only if they are given all of the information and aren't being pressured into it by external mm. external people. And, and unfortunately, they just won't have that ability. They won't have the agency over their body to say, no, I know I'm fat, but I'm not taking this medication. Most of them won't feel that way. So no. I don't think we have a consent issue here. We have all sorts of issues. I think it's an important point is that kids are going to
0: feel pressured into it, both from medical anti-fat bias, as well as just anti-fat yeah. bias that is... Everywhere that they're going to feel from their peers, that they're going to feel from their parents, that they're going to yeah. feel from teachers. Yeah, like I can also understand why this drug is so attractive to so many people if it reduces the stigma that they're experiencing. Yeah. Even if it is temporary and even if it has a really high price tag associated right. with it. Speaking of price tags, the Guardian reported earlier this month that Novo Nordisk, so the company that makes Wegovy, paid more than £21.7 million to UK health experts and organisations in just three years, according to Disclosure UK records. And then several of those experts and organisations went on to make submissions to NICE supporting the drug's approval for use in adults. Mm-hmm. It just again shows you that enormous conflict of interest within Novo Nordisk. But like we said before, the, the writing's kind of on the wall in terms of this getting pushed through NICE and you know being incorporated into NICE guidelines. What does that process look like from here? Like what happens between now and then? And, you know, how can we intercept, you know, where do we submit evidence and submit concerns and ask these questions? Can we even do that? Or is this just going to go through? Can we is tricky actually.
1: Yeah. It's not the kind of process where you can get involved as as easy as you'd like to. It's not like a public consultation, basically. It's not. What will happen is that NICE has to make a decision about whether they're going to look into it first. And then they will form a guidelines committee. NICE will have a group of help. This doesn't have to be doctors. It will be uh, experts and some of them will be more interested in data. And some of them will be interested in finances and some of them will be doctors and not necessarily... Pediatricians, all endocrinologists. They could be psychiatrists. They could be anything. They're just Doctors. members of a panel. Yeah. So that you get this little guideline committee, and then you've got your stakeholders. And so there will be certain groups that will be invited to partake. Obviously, Novo Nordisk is going to be doing the big presentation the table mm-hmm. in the adult one. We had Obesity UK, a charity mm. that is funded by Novo Nordisk. Uh, we had another obesity charity whose name I quite quite remember, but again, is funded by Novo Nordis. We had Professor John Wilding, who is the lead author of the Step 1 trial, the We Gave yes. You trial, mm-hmm. who has been paid countless handsomely. times handsomely mm-hmm. by Novo Nordis. And that was basically it. There was nobody not representing Novo Nordis. And so they go through like, you know, the beginning and people are asked to submit evidence. And then, you know, there are questions and then they have to submit more evidence. And then they have the draft guidelines. And there is probably a time when you can get involved and register your concerns. But I don't think it's open to the public. I don't Mm -hmm. believe to my knowledge that it's open to the public. I think that if this does happen, we are going to have to consciously and by we, I mean the kind of people who were you know, advocating against this drug being used in children are going to have to consciously get together and find a way to get involved in this process. I wasn't with it enough when NICE was looking at Wegovy. It was too early on. It wasn't far enough into my sort of, I guess, mm-hmm. deliverance. Activism. Deliverance, yeah. I would say more, <laughs> from, from diet culture and weight stigma. Weight but certainly this time around, we're going to have to do something about it. It's absolutely unexpected. But to be honest, I would like it not to get that far. The Guardian, The Observer have been writing a few political piece of pieces about the politics of Nobel Nordisk, and they have, in the UK, had a bit of a slap on the wrist. I don't think they're taking it very seriously. I don't think they're worried about it, but they have been caught doing some very unethical things. We're not surprised. They are very aggressive in their marketing campaign. And, you know, the, how much do you say it was? 20 million? Uh, yeah, million? Tw- 21.7 million. It's nothing compared to how much they spent in America. That was 150 million or something. Like it's nothing. I'm not going to for one second defend my colleagues because I don't have time for that. But I do think a lot of them will have been going to weight management courses or conferences, whatever, and not realized that because, because Novo Nordisk was not outspoken. They weren't like, we're Novo Nordisk and we're presenting this data to you. They ran these courses without telling them yeah. that they were running these courses. And so, a lot of my colleagues are fanatical about this drug. And also, forget, yeah, most of my colleagues learn a lot of medicine from reading The Sun and The Daily Mail, <laughs> and maybe not The Sun of The Daily Mail. Maybe, maybe my colleagues are too high-brand for that, you know, they're far too snobby to read The Sun and Daily Mail. but they're reading it in the paper. They're reading their stuff in the paper. They're They're reading
0: reading like Henry Dimbleby talk about ultra-processed food. Like he knows what the
1: fuck he's talking about. How many many fat people have gone to see a doctor and they've been recommended, oh, you should try keto because, you know, that worked for my uncle or something stupid like that. You know, doctors really have no clue when it comes to nutrition, when it comes to, quote, unquote, weight, um, what do they call it? Management. Management. Right. So they just say stuff. They repeat stuff they've read in the papers. So they've all got it in this head that this is a miracle drug because of this beautiful PR campaign. Now, if I worked in public relations, I would be massively impressed. But as a doctor who is conscious of the fact that this drug is going to massively harm children and is already massively harming adults, I am horrified that this is the society that we live in. So we have to do something about this. We really do. But all we can do is educate at the moment because I don't know yeah. how much more political power we have.
0: Mm. I'm counting on you, basically, Asher, to send up the bat signal and it's time for us to yeah. We'll
1: <laughs> we'll, we'll when it's time we're we're keeping it's time to fuck line. shit up. Just yeah. let me
0: know and I'll say yeah. you
1: know, <laughs> Reagan again. Shout out to Reagan, she's amazing mm. and she has been keeping on top of what's happening in the UK
0: so
1: on it. Um, and the politics with no because wow. obviously Reagan, I I learn a lot of. I learned most of my stuff from Reagan, but there are a group of us around the world that are doing whatever we can to to shed some light on yeah. the very dark, underhanded dealings of this company. Mm. And because she's keeping abreast of what's happening in the UK, the one good thing I can say about is the UK is that it's a lot more out in the open. Yes, you know the FDA; it's all done behind closed doors, and there's there's no legislation, there's no there's no legal requirements to do things a certain way. But if you've noticed. The ABPI, which stands for something to do with pharmaceutical industry yes. and their main organization, has kicked Novo Nordisk out and given them a really, you know, has given them mm-hmm. a good telling off because of the ethics, because of what they've done and how unethical it's been. So, this is my point. I think we also need to be exposing them for the fraudsters that they are. Mm-hmm. And anyone and everyone can do that. My friend Jeanette, who is the Mindset Nutritionist, she just wrote a Substack newsletter where there yes. was an article uh, that was in the papers last week about how how much fat people are costing the NHS. Uh-huh, I saw this. Uh, yeah. And Jeanette basically, like she talked about it and at the end she was like, oh, and by I the think- way, this person is funded by Novo Nord. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. oh, there you go. You can mm-hmm. find Novo's name anytime you try and look into it. So, you know, if you're sitting at home thinking, what can I do about this? feel free to do a little bit of sleuthing, like Googling by yourself and try just try and find the name Novo Nordis. Google the name of the doctor that's quoted in the article and then Google Novo Nordis and see if you can find the connections. Because I think the more we bring attention to this, the more we expose Mm. these fraudsters for who they are. Right.
0: Any investigative journalists listening? Do it. You know, hit Asher up. Yeah, I'm totally (laughs) on
1: board. Like, totally, that's it.
0: Let me know. I'll give you my number. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah you're what you're saying is that we we need to kind of make a noise about how unethical yes. and dubious all of this is and yeah. and how devastating this could be if it, if it goes through so yeah okay well we'll see how this all plays out if you haven't signed up to reagan's newsletter and jeanette's newsletter i'll make sure that i've linked to both of those in the show notes so that y- you know we can watch out for developments and of course I'll link to Asher's social media and everything, so you can you can follow his work as well.
1: I am in the process of bringing out a book about this. So if you're interested in finding out a little bit more, it's a little ebook. Amazing, everything that we've talked about, but in much more detail. So mm-hmm. yeah, keep your eye out.
0: All right, Asher. To wrap up, at the end of every episode, we. Yep share what we have been snacking on so it can Mm -hmm. be an actual literal snack if you want or just something that you've been really vibing on something you're really interested in and you want to share with the audience a book a podcast whatever what do you have for us mine's a book it's called it was always ours by jessica wilson oh yeah we had jessica on the podcast talking about her book
1: oh oh well then i'm not bringing any new revelations. i don't know what (laughs) she said but i Absolutely. You can give it a plug, this. and I'll link. Uh-huh. I'll link to the episode as well. It's such a good book. It's great. I found it a very easy book to read. You know, like mm-hmm. sometimes when you read nonfiction books, it feels heavy. This is not heavy. No, it's it
0: was. It, there's so many like pop culture references yes, that, that I think it, just make it feel really like relatable and understandable she digs into goop that's brilliant yeah and it's funny it's
1: it's, really she's really funny really funny like it it keeps you laughing until the end there was like one chapter at the end when she's talking about goop where i was literally rolling around giggling it's a really insightful book when it comes to just how anti-fatness has played out especially within the black community because it's a it's a book written by a black woman for black for black women but i think there's so much to learn from reading this book so Cannot plug this book enough. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And I think I've read it three times now.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, you're re-snacking. stan. Re-snacking,
1: re-snacking on it.
0: (laughs) I love it. Yeah, no, Jessica is great. And I'll link to the episode that we had her on. Um, It was a really good conversation. All right, so my thing, a little less highbrow than than Jessica's book. (laughs) I was telling you before we started recording that tomorrow is my kid's third birthday. And so over the weekend, we put up his birthday tree. A birthday tree, for people who have not been following my Instagram stories over the past couple of years, is a Christmas tree, except it's pink and covered in fake snow (laughs) that I put up for my birthday, my husband's birthday, and Avery's birthday. And I just think it's the most fun tradition we have like all his little birthday presents underneath it and it kind of gets you in like the birthday spirit and i'll put probably some like little lights and stuff on it so yeah i have this giant fucking pink christmas tree in my living room
1: and it's so like, festive and cheery do you want to see it should i should yeah no but is it like a oh my gosh it's like a full size i was thinking like a little mini one no no no, full, no, no you're, it's you're like a, yeah yeah and look at all those presents i know how did you manage to keep those unwrapped like you know They're sitting under the tree, not being messed with. Like I don't think my kids would have been that sense.
0: Yeah, I don't know actually. I think that next year we'll probably have a bigger problem. He's like he's pretty chill. Like he'll. I think. He he does ask, can we open them? And, and yeah. we're like, no, well, it's your birth- It's it's not quite your birthday yet. But yeah, if it was me, I'd be in. I'd be like pushing, like, what's this? A little, what's this? Yeah, a little
1: hair <laughs> in the a wrapping, little, like, just looking,
0: like, oh. peeking in between the the wrapping paper. My snack, uh, what I'm snacking on is birthday trees, and I think everyone should get involved in this nice. tradition. Asher, can you let everybody know where they can find you and your work online?
1: Yes, head to fatdoctor.co.uk. And there you will find not only my socials, but uh, all of the classes that I'm running, all of the courses that I'm running. I do one-to-one consulting, even when the book, the book will come out. And when it comes out, you'll be able to see it all on my website. So I think this is that's probably the central place. I'm also on Instagram. But like I said, if you go to fatdoctor.co.uk, you will be able to find me on all my socials as well.
0: Well, we're going to link to all of your places on the internet in the show notes anyway so people will be able to to find you thank you so much for coming and having what I think is a really important conversation uh, you know I think the media are presenting one side of this mm-hmm. story like you said there's a couple of journalists who are doing some sleuthing and that's really good work but it it's not going far enough and I think we need to alert parents teachers other doctors medical people to the really concerning dark underbelly of you know, the Novo Nordisk, Wegovi, Industrial Complex, whatever we want to call it.
1: Yeah. Well (laughs) said. So
0: thank you. Thank you so much, Asher. Thank you. Can I have another snack? Can I have another snack? Thanks so much for listening to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast. You can support the show by subscribing in your podcast player and leaving a rating and review. And if you want to support the show further and get full access to the Can I Have Another Snack universe, you can become a paid subscriber. It's just £5 a month or £50 for the year, as well as getting tons of cool perks. You help make this work sustainable and we couldn't do it without the support of paying subscribers. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to learn more and sign up today. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas. Our sound engineer is Lucy Dearlove. Fiona Bray formats and schedules all of our posts and makes sure that they're out on time every week. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Praser, and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Can
1: I Have Another Snack?